Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, well, I want to wish you a happy seventh week of Easter uh, and welcome to the final installment of a series that we are calling The Beautiful Gospel. Uh, our goal during this series has been to kind of put together pieces uh, of belief that will help us fit, a co- fit and form uh, a th- coherent theological system, uh, a theological system of belief and picture that is consistent with the message and the life of Jesus. Uh, but I want to make sure that you guys understand something right here at the end of the, of the series, and that is uh, the goal uh, is not in this series, nor is it ever, just to shape belief. That's part of it, but it's not just about that. Uh, the goal is to help us think through some of these uh, theological topics and things so that we can begin to practice our faith and live out the gospel in the world. Uh, in other words, for far too long, uh, too much emphasis has been placed on belief alone. And belief is important, but it isn't everything. The goal, as we kind of think through these things, uh, is to help us uh, embody the gospel in the world. Um, so I, I want to make sure that you kind of understand that. My goal is not just to, that you believe uh, in the right way, uh, but simply that we will be in, equipped through the ways in which we see and think about God to more effectively and more faithfully live out the gospel in the world. So that's, that's the real goal. Uh, I've had a lot of fun preaching through this series. I hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, I want to say thanks to Daniel for preaching last week and doing a great job of showing us uh, that new creation begins with us. And this final week, I want to talk about the church. And uh, I want this to kind of be a a bridge sermon to a series that will begin next week. Uh, The series is called Why Church Matters. Uh, It's a three-week series that will begin next week, and it's really seeking to address this question uh, with scandal, uh, hurt, abuse, um, those are kind of the negative things. On the more positive side, with 24-7 access to Christian material uh, from a variety of sources, we'll explore the question of uh, if the church remains necessary or relevant to our modern lives. And we're gonna spend three weeks just kind of exploring that. Uh, And the series is is titled, Why Church Matters. Uh, So if you've ever kind of been asking that question, I encourage you to plug in. If you're gone, we understand summer summer plans and schedules and all of that. Make sure and catch up on podcasts. Uh, you can find it on the iTunes or Google Play, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we make it easy to find. So that's where we're headed uh, over the next few weeks. And today is kind of, kind of a bridge message to help us lead us right into this series of Why Church Matters. Uh, and so the last kind of puzzle piece that we're putting together is the church. Uh, I want to get there in a fairly interesting way. And so turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that for the first half or more of the message, you're saying, I thought this was about the church. Uh, I promise I will get there. Uh, Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 22. I want to read verses uh, 15 through 22. Uh, You can follow along as I read it. It says this. Now, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that is Jesus, with his words. So they sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used to pay for the tax. 
And they brought him a denarius, and he said, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they had heard this, they went away amazed. They were amazed, so they left him and went away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Now in this passage of scripture, Jesus finds himself in the real pickle. Uh, The Pharisees have grown unhappy with uh, the theology of Jesus, you know, that theology of forgiveness and love of enemy, mercy, uh, scandalous things like that. Uh, And I say that kind of jokingly, but actually these things are in fact scandalous. When you actually start talking about forgiveness, when you actually start thinking about what does it mean to, to implement and apply love of enemy and real mercy, These things actually are scandalous in the world. And so the Pharisees were pretty unhappy about that, and they wanted to get rid of Jesus, uh, this this guy who had become a nuisance to them. Uh, But they knew that that his theology uh, alone isn't enough to get rid of him. To do that, they will have to expose his politics. Uh, And so that's exactly what they tried to do. Now let's... uh, Let's kind of bring this into a more modern setting and what that, what that might look like if this story were to happen today. Uh, so let me offer you kind of this caveat or this example. Uh, the setting is a bit like a church that maybe has grown a bit suspicious of their pastor's political convictions. And so in an effort to really clear things up, the church organizes a potluck. Uh, Now, at the potluck, the potluck is organized, invitations go out, but we want to make sure to invite two groups in particular. Number one, we want to find the most conservative members of the church and make sure they are there. But we also want to make sure that the most left-leaning, most liberal members of the church are also there. And at first, at this potluck, we've got kind of everybody there, all the players that we need to have present are there. Uh, And at first, conversation centers around common values of the church. They celebrate new people that have begun coming. They celebrate healthy life groups. But then one of the board members, uh, and we have a great board here, by the way. This is totally, you know, this is not a real story, right? Uh, One of the board members turns to the pastor and says, hey, you know, pastor, uh, since we're all here, we were wondering, um, what do you think about the Mueller report? (laughs) Do you think that it exonerates the president of any wrongdoing, or do you think that we should start with impeachment proceedings, right? (laughs) This is a lose-lose for the pastor, right? Uh, This is a a trap. (laughs) And this is exactly what's happening with Jesus in this passage. He finds himself in precisely this, this point. Because no matter how he answers the question, this loaded question of should we pay taxes or not, one group is certainly going to be angry. Now here are the groups. There's followers of Jesus who primarily uh, were people that we would think of today as on the left. And the reason I say that is these are folks who are mostly on the margins, tired of the system as it was, frustrated with the state and all of its oppression. They were ready for a revolution. They were ready for something new. And if Jesus says, yeah, you should, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, then all of his followers that had hoped for a new kingdom and a new kind of king and liberation from the system are going to think, you know what, this guy is not what he says he is. In fact, he is just an, he's not an agent of change at all. In fact, it's just the same old thing. He's part of the system, just the same as everybody else. And so the followers of Jesus, hoping for something new, revolution, would certainly be upset if he said, yeah, you should pay your taxes. 
Now we have this other group here as well, the Pharisees who were upset with Jesus, trying to get rid of him, invited a group of people that they didn't really like, but felt could help them in their mission to kind of rid the world of Jesus. And they were the followers of Herod, or what the scripture refers to as the Herodians. Today, we might certainly call these folks the conservatives. Followers of Herod lived with this mindset. If you can't beat Rome, you might as well join them. And so while the Pharisees didn't like Herodians, they felt their presence would be advantageous in their plan to trap Jesus based on his political views. It was friendship by virtue of common enemy. Now, if Jesus says no... You shouldn't pay your taxes to Caesar, which, by the way, we should know that the Pharisees probably expected this answer, right? They probably expected Jesus to say no to this loaded question. And the reason they probably expected that was because, after all, the Torah does say that you can't put graven images on things, and the money is full of Caesar's image. Paying taxes would be a nod to Rome, and it flies in the face of the authority of God. And so they certainly expected Jesus to say, no, don't pay your taxes. In which case, the Herodians would bring Jesus up the chain of authority uh, as another troublemaking prophet telling the people that they don't have to pay taxes. Which, if you're living in the midst of an empire, is a gigantic deal, right? So either way, Jesus is in trouble. And the question is expertly formed and fashioned to achieve the goal of getting rid of this troublemaker based on how he answers and exposing his politics. You with me? Some of you are a little bit nervous, okay? I can tell. There's a nervous energy in the room. I promise this is going to be okay. Let's get there together, okay? (laughs) So this is what makes Jesus' answer so remarkable. Jesus asks for a coin and then says, render to Caesar what is Caesar." and render to God what is God's. Now there's a common misunderstanding that I want to make sure and clarify here. Jesus is not saying that there's a part of your life that belongs to empire, nation, the system, and then there's a part of your life that belongs to God, and so kind of give to Caesar his part, Monday through Saturday, Uh, give to God his part, Sunday morning, you all are doing pretty good today, and then you'll you'll be doing it right. Right? Sometimes we understand that there's kind of these sections or these areas of our life. Just kind of give to the, the state, the nation, the empire what it requires. Give to God what he requires. And just kind of hold all those things in perfect balance and then you'll be okay. This is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is actually much more profound than that. Um, the question is framed like this. Jesus asks them to get a coin. And then he says, whose portrait is on the coin? Uh, Now, there's something we need to understand about this word that is translated portrait. Uh, Many other translations, and I prefer this translation actually, would use the word image. Whose image is on the coin? Um, And then he says, well, if, if the image of Caesar is on the coin, then give that back to Caesar. So essentially what Jesus is saying is give it back to the one whose image it bears. 
And, and if you're following along, any disciple of Jesus would have known the Torah really well. The Torah is what we know as the first five books of the Bible. And so these disciples of Jesus, certainly familiar with the Jewish scriptures, the first five books, would have known that what the Torah teaches overwhelmingly, right at the beginning, right in the creation story, is that humanity is uniquely and beautifully, bear, as, beautifully bears the image of God. Okay? And so God has placed his, his image in us so that our role and our vocation then is to reflect the love and mercy and goodness of God back to each other and to all of creation. That when you think about what is the human vocation at its core or at its foundation, it's right there in the very beginning of Scripture where God, at the crown of his creation, creating humanity, places his image in us for the purpose of then reflecting that image back into all of creation, including one another. <laughs> Which says a whole bunch, like just that, just that alone will preach about what it means to be in proper relationship with creation itself, with one another, how we ought to treat other, other people even when they're not like us, right? I mean, just kind of getting that truth alone has all sorts of implications. In fact, one of the, you'll know that in the Torah also includes don't make images of me, right? This, this command to not make images of God. And the answer, the, the reason for that is not because uh, God thinks, God like has an image problem about what he looks like and he says, oh, every time you make an image of me, you'll never get it right, you know? My hair will always be sticking up, my nose is too big, you know, those kinds of things, like all those kind of stuff that we worry about with our image. God does not have an image problem. That's not the reason that he kind of says, don't make images of me. The reason that he says, don't make images of me is because he already has made and is making images of himself. You and I, this is good preaching, right? Like, come on. And so, so it's like, so we have this, this, this profound thing that Jesus does where he says, whose image does it bear? Then give it back to the one whose image is on it. It's a, it's a way of saying, give our whole lives back to God. Because your whole life bears his image. There's none of this sort of like dissect your life into these different areas and just keep them in perfect balance. It's a way of saying, give your whole life to God. And they walk away amazed. The trap didn't work, and Jesus gives them a lesson of a lifetime. But I imagine uh, that maybe the next day, maybe later that day, um, after they had walked away and they were kind of going about their business, um, I imagine the Pharisees and others who were there got to realizing something really important. And that is Jesus never actually answered the question about the taxes. <laughs> you ever had a moment like that where you're like, you know, you kind of have this, whoa, aha moment. You walk away and you realize, wait a second, I never actually got what I asked about. <laughs> Which is precisely what happened here. Jesus doesn't answer the question about the taxes, but what he does is he points out a coin and makes that the center of his answer. Now, before mass media... Uh, so like, let's kind of place ourselves in the world of Jesus for a moment. Like we're, we're drowning in media, social media, images, advertisements. I mean, where our lives are abs absolutely saturated with it. 
But imagine a world where you have none of that. Would you know what the president looks like? With no TV, no social media, no computer in your pocket. Would, you, would it be possible for you to actually know what this person looked like? The answer is actually no. But in the ancient world, it was quite rare to actually see with your own eyes the emperor or the king. It would have been a gigantic deal. I saw him. <laughs> and so most of the population would actually have no idea what the emperor or the king looked like. And so the emperor, of course, had, had an image to uphold. He wanted to make sure that everyone knew who he was. And so what was the way, what was kind of the original mass media? Coinage, money, currency. And it was a way of saying, if I stamp my image on this, and then as everyone kind of goes about their business of buying and selling, they'll know what the emperor and the king looks like. And so the emperor, in an, in an effort to make their image known, would engrave their image on coins, form their image into statues, and then place them all over the empire so that their subjects knew the image of their king. In this way... The coin was actually meant to be, and I want you to hear me, the coin was actually meant to be this propaganda of the empire. The coin even had inscriptions on it, praising Caesar as son of God and high priest. Did you hear that? The coin engraven with Caesar's image has an inscription on it calling Caesar the son of God. You see, what happens is we, we tend to like, we, we are so far removed from this world that when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we don't realize how absolutely loaded politically that would have been in Jesus' world. It was, a, it was an alternative political claim that Jesus is Lord, he is the Son of God, Caesar is not, to which the empire shakes its fist, right? It's flying right in the face of Rome and the empire. And so I want you to see the irony here. I want you to see the irony. The people who are so worried about idolatry, when asked for a coin, pull it out of their pocket and say, oh yeah, here you go. <laughs> Let me say it this way. They're people of the temple and have the empire in their pocket. They're people of the temple and have the empire in their pocket. Now I'm using empire a lot, so let me take a moment to define that. By empire, I mean wealthy nations that feel it is their right to shape history according to their own agenda. That's what I mean by empire. Wealthy nations that feel like it is their right to shape history according to their own agenda. And empires, empires have this kind of way of demanding allegiance, demanding uh, a life that is aligned to their values. Values of empire are most often uh, the benefit of one group through the oppression of others, a sense of divine right to carry out violence, etc., etc. And when you have this kind of this, this tension or this irony of temple people who have the empire in your pocket, you actually have a picture of one of the most common tensions in the Bible. Here's the tension. A common theme throughout Scripture is this. God is trying to form a people to reflect his image, but the problem is they live in an empire. You with me? 
Here's the common theme throughout Scripture. God is trying to form a people to reflect his image to one another and to the world. But the problem is there also, there's counterformation going on because they also live in empire. Now, sometimes the people of God are oppressed by empire. Sometimes they are the oppressing empire. Sometimes they are the oppressed. Sometimes they are the oppressors. We see that history and that cycle throughout Scripture. And so that's a common theme. That's a common tension that God is trying to form a people. But the problem is those people live in an empire that has all sorts of counterformation things going on. Let me give you some examples. Let's kind of take a, a, a... a fast overview of Scripture. The first empire in the Scripture is Babel, the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, later becomes Babylon. The Tower of Babel. Here's the temptation for Babel. The temptation in Babel is we don't need God to come down. We can go up. You see, empires believe that they can figure it out on their own and they don't need God at all. You with me? Do you see that anywhere, (laughs) right? Empires believe that they don't need God at all. They can figure it out all on their own. Well, then, then you have Egypt, the next empire. And the question facing God's people in Egypt is, are you going to identify with the power of Pharaoh or are you going to align your life with the vulnerability of the lamb? And that's a key question that the people of God are still facing. Are you going to align your life with the, with the power of Pharaoh or with the vulnerability of the lamb? That's a key question, and the people of God have to face that question while living in Egypt. Well, the next one, Assyria. In Assyria, the temptation is to believe what Assyria is trying to scream and proclaim, and that is that the way of the world is violence and power, so you might as well get about the business of gaining power and using violence. And then Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar? That's the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego story. Those of you who grew up in the 90s like I did, Rakshak and Benny, right? I can hardly get that out of my head. It's just like forever burned there. Uh, I really, like first comes to my mind is Rakshak and Benny, and then I have to remember their biblical names. Never mind the fact that I'll never remember their Hebrew names, right? Because how we know them are actually their Babylonian names. And uh, we've talked about that and the, the significance of that in the past. But you remember the story. Uh, they, um, there, there's this prayer time to Nebuchadnezzar. The, the Rakshak and Bini, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, refuse to do that. Uh, and so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Here's the temptation under the Babylonian empire with Nebuchadnezzar. The temptation is to conflate faith in God and allegiance to empire into the same thing. The temptation is to conflate faith in God and allegiance to empire and conflate them into the same thing. Because here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. Nebuchadnezzar says, you can have all of your religion and all of its practices as long as you also participate in empire worship. Nebuchadnezzar was never saying you can't pray to your God. He was saying you also have to honor me. (laughs) You also have to bow down to this statue. And what what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in all of their their discernment and their faithfulness, recognized that to do so would be to, to sacrifice my allegiance to the kingdom of God, or what Jesus will later call the kingdom of God. 
And then in Rome, the temptation is to believe that peace can be achieved through violence or the threat of violence. And so from beginning to end, the scripture is trying to address the tension of how to live as God's people in the midst of empire or how to be temple people when we have the empire in our pocket. Are you with me this morning? And then you come to the book of Revelation. And we've done several series on Revelation in the past. But I simply, this morning, I simply want to say this. Revelation is not an endorsement of God's, is not about God's endorsement of violence to accomplish divine purposes. But rather, Revelation is a prophetic critique of the way of empire. And we get all excited as evangelicals about the mark of the beast, right? Uh, but if you actually read the text, you recognize that it's not just the mark of the beast, it's also the mark of the lamb. That when you're introduced to the mark of the beast, and that number is the number of a person, and that number is 666, that's Revelation 13, 18. Revelation 14, 1, literally the next verse, says the people of God were marked by the lamb and had his mark on their foreheads. And so in Revelation, the question is not do you bear the mark? The question is whose mark do you bear? (laughs) Yeah! Okay? So here's the question. Is your life marked by the ways of the beast embodied in the empire throughout history? Or is your life marked by the ways of the lamb that are embodied in Jesus Christ? That's the question. That's the key question that the book of Revelation is trying to ask and trying to address. Is your life marked by the ways of the beast that are embodied through empires throughout history? Or is your life embodied by the way of the lamb? Or is your life marked by the way of the lamb that is embodied in Jesus Christ? And let me tell you this. The answer to that question is not easy. I can sing and dance and get excited up here all I want. But when the rubber meets the road, this question is far more difficult than any of us would like. It's way more nuanced than probably we would prefer. It is a difficult question. We live as people of the temple who have the empire in our pocket, and it creates a tension. And I would just say to you, if you don't feel any tension then that's probably a problem. There's only a problem if you don't think there's a problem. (laughs) If you don't feel that tension in some way, that's a problem. Because we're called to be formed and shaped as the people of God with a single allegiance, but we have all this counterformation going on in the empire. And so so part of being a Christian disciple is to feel the tension, recognize it, lean into it, and do our very best to live as the people of God. And here's the best way that I know how to speak into this tension. This is where we get to the church. The best way that I know to speak of this tension is that the church that is the body of believers, you and I. When I say the church, I do not mean a building. I don't even mean a particular gathering at a particular time on a particular day. When I say the church, I mean the global body of believers that includes anyone who professes Jesus Christ as Lord. 
That's what I'm talking about. The church then, here's how I know how to speak into this, this tension, this we're temple people with the empire in our pocket kind of tension, is this. The church is to be a prophetic witness of God's future. The church is to be a prophetic witness of God's future. Here's the thing. There is a sense in which we cannot, well, there's a sense in which we must be citizens of the place where we live, right? We must participate in the life of the empire. The call of faithfulness to Jesus Christ is not a call to like, live a life in isolation in a bunker somewhere. <laughs> that is not the invitation of Jesus Christ. Right? So there is this sense in which we must participate in the life of the empire. It's where we live. And we can even, listen, I want you to hear me today. We can even be proud of the many accomplishments of nation and state. But at the same time, we must maintain our uniqueness because we are progressing towards God's future. That as the people of God, we are progressing towards God's future. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about eschatology and we said that central to what God is planning to do in the end is that he is all about the work of redemption and renewing and retelling and that work has begun now. Now the fancy theological term for this is called inaugurated eschatology, right? Spell that one. <laughs> so it's called inaugurated eschatology which, is simply, which simply means the redemptive work that God is going to bring to completion has already begun. The end begins or has begun. What this means then, with, if, we, if we know that God's retelling, redeeming, renewing work is right here and right now and it's present and it has begun, what does that mean? It means that there is a sense in which we can catch glimpses of what the world fully restored will begin to look like. And here's our responsibility as the body of Christ. We have the responsibility and the privilege to bear witness to that future. To catch glimpses of it and hold on to it and say, yes, that's what we're moving toward. That's what we are to be about. Sometimes I hear religious people say, uh, talk, talk about uh, going back. And I want to be careful here, but I am usually suspicious of anyone who wants to go back. Because listen, we are not to be a people who grasp onto the past. We are to be a people who serve as a preview of God's future. Right? Let me say it again, just so you get it. The church is not to be a people who grasp onto the past. We are to be a people who serve as a preview of God's future. Yeah, okay, you're not as excited as I am. That's okay. <laughs> now, when, when you go to see a movie, when you go to see a movie, uh, you have to sit through previews. And that's how many of you feel about it. Oh, I have to sit through previews. Uh, I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, I want to go to a movie so I can see the previews, right? This has diminished a little bit with all the, you can get previews now anywhere, anytime. But man, back when I was like, back in the day, you know, like back in the day when we were still listening to CDs and stuff, you had to go to the movie theater. Yeah, that's right. An amen for CDs, compact discs. You had to go to the movie theater to see the previews. And that, to this day, to this day, is still my favorite part of the movie. I love the previews. I love going to big blockbuster movies because then I know I'm going to be there half an hour watching previews before the thing ever starts. 
And I'm like, I'm happy, I'll happily give my half hour to these previews. Here's what a preview does. It gives you a glimpse of the movie that is yet to come. It's a movie that has already begun to be made, and in the preview is here are some glimpses of what it's going to be like. You with me? The church is to be a preview for God's new creation. Ha <laughs> ha. It's like when people come to church or interact with Christians in a perfect world, they would hear the movie trailer voice, God's new creation coming soon everywhere. Right? It's just like you have this interaction and then you hear that trailer, that trailer voice in your head and you're like, man, this is what the world is supposed to be like. This is how people are supposed to be treated with honor, with dignity, with grace as an image bearer of God. Now we don't always do that perfectly, but that's what the church is to be. As the Apostle Paul wrestles with the tension of how to be God's people and reflect his image while also living in empire, he says this, this is Titus chapter two, beginning with verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to world passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own and eager to do what is good. Did you catch it? Paul essentially says we are to live in these ways in this present age while we wait. But in the midst of the waiting, it isn't sort of like a passive waiting, it's an active waiting where God is is forming us and shaping us as a people. And so to, to simply put it, the church is to be a community from the future, <laughs> right? You have to say that kind of weird or it, doesn't, it loses its effect, right? Um, as Bob Ross says, uh, you, have to, you have to make that noise or it doesn't work, right? Yes. Bob Ross, it's probably been a while since you guys have seen Bob Ross, but it is like a thing in our house right now. I don't know why, but the, our girls are loving Bob Ross. So uh, I, I, I'll, I'll get back, uh, let's uh, bring this train back. Uh, here's what author and pastor Brian Zahn says uh, in his book, Beauty Will Save the World. He says this, it's a lengthy quote, so stick with me. He says, the church is to be a preview of of what is to come while living in this present age. We are to be a partial preview of the full manifestation of the reign of Jesus Christ. The larger society should be able to look at the church and get an idea of where this thing is headed. The world should be able to look at the church and see a preview of what is to come. Now, of course, this requires radical faithfulness on the part of the church. We are only from the future so long as we live lives of deep obedience to the Lordship of Christ. If we are merely a religious version of shared cultural assumptions of our age, we are chaplains to the status quo and we are no longer a prophetic people. And so then he says this, what is most needed from the church in this age is that we recover our prophetic vocation and truly live as those who are from the future. I love that. Now, it it just keeps getting good, and so I'll I'll just keep going. But it says this. Because we are called to be from the future, and thus a prophetic witness to the world, the first job of the church 
is not to be relevant or successful, which can easily become idols of compromise and accommodation. Instead, our primary task is to be faithful. Wow. The church's first job is not to be relevant or successful. Instead, our primary task is to be faithful. And faithful to what or to whom? Faithful to Jesus Christ and his lordship. Right? The the, the people of God confess Jesus is Lord, and that has all sorts of implications, and there's all sorts of ways to work that out, but it is a claim that we are making about the world. When we say Jesus is Lord, we are making a statement, and we begin to kind of explore what does it look like to align our lives to that statement. And so, the task of the church, and again, I want to emphasize this is not easy, but the task of the church is to live with the tension of being the people of God surrounded by empire, and then begin to ask, what will the world come to look like? And then lean into those things. What will the world come to look like? And then lean into those things. And I'm convinced that if we're hearing the message of Jesus and his announcement of the kingdom of God, it will mean things like, this is not an exhaustive list, The world will be a place of balance between consumption and production. There will be harmony between races. There will be peace that is far more than the absence of violence. There will be the end of oppressive systems. There will be victory over sin and the end of shame and guilt and a thousand other things, right? And so, the church is to be this group of people that works together to discern these things, to live faithfully, and then go into the world and give a preview of the future that God has in store. You with me? Let's, uh, let's have our weekly dose of some, some hyper-honesty. <laughs> I always think before I launch into these things, should I do that? Um, but here I go. I've pastored this church for almost 13 years. And uh, one of my main frustrations is that surrounding church this body of Christ called to be a preview of the future is an industry has kind of rose up around that. And there's a lot of pressure in the industry to grow the church, get more people in seats, attraction events, this and that, and whatever churches are choosing to do, that's fine. Um, But the reality that I consistently face is, you know what, on paper I don't have a lot to show. Kind of been here a long time, and the church has kind of always been, you know, Kind of goes to 70 with bursts up to 100 and back down to 70 and sometimes down to below that and sometimes a little bit up above that. But on paper, I don't have a lot to show. And so people say, oh man, you've been at your church and how's it going? And, and what they really want to know is how many people are there? <laughs> and and how, many, how many new people are there? And are you, are you like... Saving Fort Collins for Jesus Christ. And, and, and overwhelmingly, what I've come to terms with is, you know what? 
And I kind of go like, I go like this too. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> this is not true. This part's not true. I say, I just think I needed to lighten the mood a little bit. I say, you know what? Uh, we're not a big church, but I'm pretty sure we're a healthy church. And, and I'm pretty sure that we're faithful in living out the kingdom of God the best way that we know how. And I can tell you, you know, that lands with some people and, and it doesn't with others. And others are just kind of like, well, you've been there forever, you should have a bigger church. You have a leadership lid, they call it. <laughs> and I suppose I probably do have a leadership lid. Uh, but I've just come to a place in my own life where I'm, I'm more concerned about being faithful and fruitful and healthy. Those are, those are the kinds of words that I use when I try to describe the church. And as long as you're okay with that, we would love to have you continue worshiping with us. Because <laughs> that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. Is is I'm, I'm trying to just be faithful to the message of Jesus. And yes, we want people to come to a knowledge of the, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Yes, we want people's lives to be changed. Absolutely. Are we going to drop money from a helicopter to get, him, get them here? No, we're not. Our, you know, I, I dance up here a little bit, but I'm not going to sing and dance, you know, start a sing and dance show just to get people here. We're going to go about the business of the kingdom of God. Are you with me? All right, I'll be done. Let me say a word of prayer, and then I'll lead us to the table for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word, this challenging word from Matthew that presents us with this tension of what it means to be your people. While living in the midst of all sorts of counterformation. And so, God, I pray that as we gather together each and every Sunday, that you would, in fact, form us as your people. That each and every week that we would not only experience your presence and a sense of your presence, of, of your love and your grace and your mercy that is so real for our lives, uh, us personally, but God, would you also give us a sense of, of what you're doing corporately that you have in mind to form together a people that might bear witness to a prophetic future. In the midst of, of all kinds of stuff going on in the world that, that would be caused to lose hope, God, may we be a people who, are, who not only speak of hope, but embody it. I suppose, God, our prayer is that we would be resurrection people. Who in all hope and all cause for hope is lost. We believe that new life is possible. And may we believe that not just in our own lives and in the life of individuals, but may we believe that for the world. For God, we want to recognize that your work on the cross has cosmic implications. And so God, um, for all the points of discernment that we need, and especially in the weeks to come as we explore these questions of is this thing called the church continue to be relevant or necessary in our, in our lives today. Lord, uh, give us wisdom and understanding as we explore those things. And be with us now as we gather around the Lord's table today. May we come, Lord, with, with the joys of Easter, with the belief of resurrection,
Um, and may this practice itself be a picture of your new creation. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We give you praise today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.